In our last episode, we dove into veganic permaculture and what sets it apart from conventional methods. We also talked a little bit about food forests, which we're definitely going to have to do a full episode on soon. But we've noticed a growing increase in one topic specifically that's been coming up a lot lately, and that's the topic of foraging. So in preparation for this podcast, I went on a foraging tour in the mountains of Horseshoe, North Carolina. But according to the website of my next guest, you don't need to be in a rural environment to find healthy, wild foods growing all around you. All you need to get started is a guide who knows your area. Today, we learn the common myths and benefits of foraging. Hey, what's up everybody? This is Austin Haynes with the Waking Justice Project. In today's podcast, we'll interview a true revolutionary who's making evolutionary change in their community. Resilient communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable global society. And the foundation of a resilient community is a just and sustainable local food economy. It's why the global revolution starts at home at local farms and community gardens, at grocery co-ops and local food hubs, in your own garden, in your kitchen, and on your plate. The local food supply chain is the foundation of a self-reliant community, and resilient, self-reliant communities are the core building blocks of a just and sustainable new society, a new social system that will make this existing system of corruption obsolete. That is the revolution we seek. The real revolution is a strategic, nonviolent revolution. It builds self-reliance and community resilience. The real revolution is a local revolt. My guest today graduated from Princeton University. He's the co-founder of a school for rediscovering human nature called the Real Center. But he's here today because he's the founder of No Taste Like Home, which is one of the largest foraging tour companies in the world. And with them, he's been literally taking people out to eat for nearly 25 years. Please welcome to the show, Alan Muscat. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, you got it. Thanks for being here. So obviously, like I said, you're on the show today because you're a master forager. So maybe could you just give the people uh, some information about like what is foraging for folks that don't know? Sure. It, it means gathering wild food. So uh, out in nature, things that we haven't planted, although sometimes it means getting things people have planted that they're not eating. So it, not necessarily wild, but ideally not, not bred, you know, not modified or, hybridized over thousands of years okay cool and then so how did you get into it like what was your uh inspiration for starting no taste like home well i wanted to get natural myself this was before i started teaching and around the same time i i was gathering for restaurants but prior to that out of college i wanted to just get back to the land and join a commune, you know, be a hippie and not have a job and not have to pay for food and and not plug into a system that I didn't feel ethically good about. Sure. You know, and some more pieces, you know, maybe afraid of commitment. You know, a farmer like literally puts down roots, you know, and a forager uh, doesn't have to. So I think even that fed into it. Yeah. All right. Right on. So... I definitely am all about that, um, getting back to nature, you know, having your own food, not having to work as much. Like, it definitely resonates. It'll resonate with a lot of people listening, too, I'm sure. Um, where'd you come up with the name, No Taste Like Home? It came out of, uh, you know, of course, it's a play on The Wizard of Oz. And I actually played a part in The Wizard of Oz briefly before I thought of the name. I was helping a homeschool put on a production and I played the Wicked Witch, actually. <laughs> it was quite fun. <laughs> nice. And um, I needed a name for something because I was starting to involve other people. And it wasn't the name for the business because the business was just me teaching, but it was going to be a series of events. And this was the name for that because we were going to have uh, foraging and then big dinners. And we did do 
three of them, but eventually I scaled down and now I have restaurants cooking for people after we go foraging. And okay. so they handle that piece of it. But I kept the name because at that point, and I'm still thinking back, I, it started to become too much for me to handle, you know, so it couldn't just be, you know, my name. Uh, now, you know, there's a lot of meaning that I've woven into that since, you know, in my writing. And it's certainly instructive because getting back to nature is, is getting back home. Yeah. Very cool. So I went on a tour a week ago with you guys and it was awesome. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And um, one of the things that I noticed was that they had a, like a check sheet, a, a, a checklist of the top 150 foods, I think, that we were able to come across, I guess, in Western North Carolina. Is that right? 150 foods around here? There are uh, at least 300, not even counting mushrooms, uh, that are edible in our area. And wow. Probably, you know, another several hundred, if not several thousand mushrooms that are edible. But the 150 are the ones that we would consider common. Okay. And then there are 30 that are the most common. And so common is what I mean by top, not like tastiest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then so how many um, edible like plants to be foraged do you think there are in the world? Oh, yeah, gosh, I've seen a figure for that, uh, but it has been a while. It's got to be in the tens of thousands, and which is a stark contrast to the handful that we eat today. Yeah, well, I just think the idea of it is so cool because it, it just, it lets us know that we actually live like in abundance. You know, I think a lot of people, it's easy to get in like a scarcity mindset, especially when you're dealing with the system and shopping for your food and stuff like that. But if you're able to kind of like break free of the mindset, there's actually so many foods around us day to day, right? Yeah, I know this is called waking justice. And you know, to me, waking up is that breaking out because the scarcity is a mindset and a, an illusion. Uh, and not all those thousands of edibles are necessarily common, but they've done studies of hunter-gatherers around the world, and they routinely have 100 to 150 things that are part of what they forage regularly. Wow. So we are not that special here, even though we have more diversity than most places. It's, you know, 150 is not an unusual number. Okay, well, that's good to know. So it is abundant in most places. I guess wherever there's a lot of sunlight, you're going to have abundant plants to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's just get like the, the elephant in the room out of the way. So like how dangerous is it to forage and how did you acquire the knowledge to, to feel comfortable doing it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of several elephants, but that's the first one. In the okay, main. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the elephant is a good analogy because you know that story of people not knowing it's an elephant, right? When they're just feeling part of it in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the scarcity, um, when you turn the light on, it's obvious. And if you grow up with these things, they're not dangerous. Sure. Yeah. So it's important to realize like that if you or, you know, any beginner went out foraging tomorrow, it's as dangerous as if you took a hunter-gatherer, you know, indigenous uh, aborigine, for example, and put them behind the wheel of a car and told them to drive. Yeah. But when you grow up with these things by the time you're, you know, five, seven years old, you're, you're an expert in those literally 50, if not, a, you know, more of those edibles. Now you asked me a second part to that question. Yeah. So like, how did you become comfortable with it? And yeah. cause you know, I'm asking that so that hopefully other adults can, can become comfortable with it. Cause you know, you're kind of saying that it's got to start with the kids. You kind of got to grow up with it. But somebody's got to teach the kids. So so I'm trying to get people like just into the idea of like, you know, foraging and going out there and trying it out. And um, just, you know, how do you how do you start learning that process? Yeah, I did not learn as a kid and you don't have to learn as a kid. Mm -hmm. Like a foreign language, it's a lot easier to pick up as a kid. 
I would say it's easier than picking up a foreign language as an adult. Far easier. But it does take immersion, which is what you would do to learn any foreign language. Ideally, the easiest way is to go and spend time in that country. And in this case, you spend time in the country. You know. And so the best way to learn has two parts. One is practice, which is what I just described. And the other is guidance, which is what you said. So even as an adult, you find another adult or a child, whoever is an expert, to hold your hand through it, to act as a mentor. This is the natural way to learn. It's the easiest way, the safest way, and the fastest way. Yeah, so you just got to go out there and start doing it. Find somebody who who kind of understands the environment where they're from, right? Because every environment's going to be different too. So you're kind of just learning wherever you're at. Yeah, and if you go online, which is what most people do to learn more about things, you're not where you're at. You're nowhere, you know, and you're on the internet. Who knows what you know, information you're getting. And even if it's perfectly reliable and perfectly written for your area, you are looking in a mirror. Like you are the one deciding that what you're holding is the same as what you're reading about or seeing photos of. Yeah. And yes, there's apps now that you will take, you know, look at something and ID it for you. I've seen some work very well, some work really poorly. I wouldn't rely on them. Again, our habit, our addiction to, you know, technology is a disempowerment. Like I realize some people may have a hard time finding someone in their area. And that's unfortunate. Like you said, it's a chicken and the egg. But there are ways to do it. There are mushroom clubs in every state. I've dreamed of and talked to people about starting a national network and associations, sort of like, you know, it would be like Boy Scouts for yeah. all ages. And it's going to be more important the less that people can buy their own food. Sure. You know, in the store. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. And like you said, it's going to be more and more important. And I feel like, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, people are learning that they want to get back to like the basics. You know what I mean? And, And people are also learning that we might have to get back to the basics you know, it, it might not be a choice. Um, so it's good to have these skills and this information moving forward. And, you know, I, I want to add that I read a really good book recently by Charles Eisenstein called Climate, A New Story. Mm-hmm. And he argues that, you know, we a lot of us talk about what we're going to have to do. And it's more helpful to frame things as what do we want? Because even if you don't have to forage, there are a lot of advantages to foraging and a lot of pleasure in foraging. I like that. We don't have to do it just because everything else falls apart. I mean, this is better than food from the store. This is more fun. This is more nutritious. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you too, is like, what is the difference between the um, nutrition content when you're foraging to like, you know, what people are eating from the stores? Well, I have two answers you're probably asking about the foods themselves and the nutritional content, you know, difference varies. Like I said at the beginning, you know, what's been, I hesitate to say genetically modified because I'm talking about traditional selection, artificial selection. This is like what we've select, you know, what's the word developed, you know, corn, for example, looks nothing like it does in the wild apples don't, etc. Those things are five to 50 times less nutritious. Wow. Yeah. In some cases, like a hundred times less, but that depends on what, you know, what metric you're using. Sure. You know, vitamin A you're comparing, is it sort of a, a spectrum of, you know, minerals? In my view, reasonably speaking, we evolved to eat wild foods. So anything that isn't wild, isn't natural. Depending on this, you know, the speed of our evolution, you know, you could argue, I mean, I had a friend once who said like, oh, I figure if I eat cotton candy enough, my body will adapt to it. Yeah. How'd that work out for your friend? No, he, he's, <laughs> he's diabetic. But um, so it just stands to reason that um, what's best for us is what we evolved based on what was available I say BC before Costco. You know? um, I like that. 
Now, th now that's just the food. And I want to say that the active ingredients in foraging are not in the food. They're in the activity of foraging. So even if you buy this wild food in the store or pay someone else to forage it for you, then you're going to miss out on the sunshine, the vitamin D, the exercise, everything else you get about connecting with nature from being outside, connection to what some people call God or the source of our well-being. You know, you could think of it as nature. It doesn't matter. But you feel at home because you feel supported. And um, when you gather it yourself, it's more of a experience of that. Providence is one word for it. You know? Yeah, I think that was something I noticed immediately from being on uh, the foraging tour. You know, we got into the middle of the woods and all of a sudden I just felt better. You know, like I, I realized that I haven't been taking enough time to be in nature lately. And it really was like very therapeutic almost immediately. Like right when we walked in, I just felt better. So I thought like a, another interesting thing um, when we were out there was, you know, the guide, Hannah, she just kind of like let us do our thing for a while. We, we walked around, we, we grabbed a bunch of food or stuff that we thought was food, mainly mushrooms, and we brought them all back to the blanket and we dumped everything out and we looked at our yield. And then she started going through things and kind of telling us, you know, what was what? Uh, what was edible, what was deadly, what was, you know, toxic, etc. And um, I would say probably like around 50% of the mushrooms we found seemed to be edible, um, which I, I thought was like pretty incredible. I don't know if that's normal or not, but like it, it seemed really cool for us. Like we, you know, 50% of the stuff we got to keep. So you have this really uh, cool video on YouTube, and it's called How Mushroom Hunting Can Save the World. I gotta know. I, I haven't even watched the video yet, just because I wanted to see like what, what your reaction would be and like how you would explain <laughs> having yeah. a title like that. Yeah, well, I'll answer by backing up and, and commenting on the story you related of how the tour runs so that people don't get the wrong impression. And it's important in how to save the world because we, like I said, we have this first illusion that foraging is, you know, too dangerous, but there's several common ones. The one that relates to what you're saying is uh, we do send out people at one point on sort of a treasure hunt and let them pick as much and anything that they think, you know, they want to learn about. And some people might think that's irresponsible because we'll destroy the woods, but we do teach people, you know, a few edibles before that. And if people pick something that is new to them, we tell them to just take a leaf or even just a photo if it's the only one there. But mushrooms grow back. So they're like berries on a tree or, you know, or a bush. So a lot of people don't realize the impact is negligible of picking all the mushrooms. Wow. So th do they grow back pretty much in the same spot? Sometimes, but not necessarily because what is growing back, you know, if you picture a tree underground, it can be gigantic. And so the fruit can come out on any place in the tree. And the largest creature on earth is a fungus in Oregon that is miles across. It is one individual sprouting millions of mushrooms. So we see the mushroom, and but we're seeing the tip of the iceberg. Okay. So the fourth myth is that if everyone went foraging four, because I counted as four, there's two more, I'll tell you, you know, we would destroy the woods. You know, maybe the other thing you said relates to the second, which is that foraging is too difficult, meaning it's hard to come up with enough food to eat. But it's not just 50% of mushrooms that are edible. That day, it was 50% that she knows for sure were edible. Sure. The figures for North America are about 10,000 species. Out of those, only 10 or so are deadly. Okay. Only, only 200 or so are known to be poisonous. Another at least 200 are commonly eaten and edible. The rest are considered unknown but not suspected of being poisonous. Yeah. And that's mushrooms. So the, basically it says that probably 98% of mushrooms are edible. That's what that means. Wow. Yeah, you I got a question about that. Go ahead. So... 
she found one mushroom in particular that she said, you know, she was like, basically people don't know about this one. They don't know yet if it's edible. But then she went on to say, but my boss, Alan, actually eats this. (laughs) Funny, I wonder which one that was because I had someone make the mistake of saying we don't know when it was actually that we consider it inedible. Uh, That could be the case. But there are ones that most people will tell you unknown that I do eat. And the reason is, you know, it's a gray area, edibility in the wild. Edibility in the store is a gray area. I mean, in the restaurant, you could be allergic to shellfish, right? You could be allergic to chocolate, milk, peanuts, like, you know, the list goes on and on, usually proteins, which mushrooms have a fair amount of. So we don't know who's going to react to what. Mushrooms aren't poisonous all with the same substance in the same way. So we find out the hard way, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, they say unknown for that 98% because not enough people in North America have eaten them and reported that they haven't had a problem. Sure. So one of the things she might have been talking about is a mushroom that everywhere else in the world is eaten very often, except here, where we're afraid of eating mushrooms. And nowhere else in the world has anyone ever gotten sick from this mushroom. And still, books will say unknown here, because it is true that it could, this could be the one place in the world where what looks like the same mushroom is actually poisonous. Oh, okay. So is it true that the only way to find out is by someone eating these? Or is there a scientific way to figure out if it'll uh, harm most people? The most common toxin is identified... And we can test for it. The one that the most common deadly toxin. Okay. There's a handful of other toxins that are in several mushrooms and we can test for those. But you still have not ruled out mushrooms that might be toxic and no one has eaten enough of them to find out. And at this point, many people would say, like one guy once said to me, you know, I'll take my chances at the store. Like, okay, thank you. Like that sounds way too risky and not worth it. Yeah. And What I say to those people is, maybe most of your listeners or some of them is, if you eat wild food, you might get sick. If you don't eat wild food, I guarantee you will get sick. (laughs) I love that. That's awesome. It's what we're evolved to eat. Okay. And, you know, life has risk and you are increasing your risk because most people will not, you know, make this connection there are a class of diseases called lifestyle diseases or diseases of civilization. Sure. Right? You know, cancer and diabetes, for example, are among them and heart disease. And these are due to, in part to not exercising, you know, uh, not just smoking, but eating crappy food. Yep. To me, anything you buy in the store is more or less crap. So that's the risk you're taking either way. And I, I need to back up and say that you asked me, is there is it only trial and error or is there a scientific way? So the scientific way is trial and error. And they can test for these su- few substances, but we only learn to start testing for them because people were dying. That's the hard way. It's my understanding that when you're connected to nature and you grow up in a culture that is, you have a way of knowing that isn't scientific. It's intuitive or what you might call revelatory or spiritual, but when you talk to any indigenous peoples about how they figured these things out, they don't tell you trial and error. They tell you the plants told us, animals told us, God told us, our dreams told us. We have a scarcity in our culture, not just of material things, and not, and not just of relationships and uh, love and community, but a way of knowing what to do in our lives what is safe and what's dangerous, what's appropriate. You know, we, we've lost and we live in ignorance with a belief that we know more than we ever did. Yeah, we tend to be pretty disconnected. And um, you said something that was really interesting there. You said basically uh, that the science is trial and error. So we, ha- we try these foods and we figure out if they're harmful. Well, the funny thing is, you know, how many people die from eating mushrooms every year? You know, I don't know, probably less than 1% of the population, way less than that. But then how many people die from heart disease every year? 
how many people die from cancer every year, which you said are lifestyle diseases. And a lot of that comes from what we eat. It's just so funny to me that we would be afraid of like trying new things and trying natural things when what we're actually eating as a society is killing us and it's proven in large amounts that the disconnect there is just so funny to me. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous disempowerment and it's biophobia, you know, fear, fear of nature. And when you fear nature, you basically have a, an autoimmune condition because you are, nature is not just out there. It includes our body, which is the natural part of us, you know, sure. and our, and our heart, which is, you know, mistrusted by our minds. And so we are in a very, um, a place that you, when you see everything falling apart, you know, that started tens of thousands of years ago, not, not like, not four years or 50 years ago. Sure. Yeah. So I want to get back to that question. I asked you a couple questions back because I I just got to know the answer to this, but so how can mushroom hunting save the world? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was wondering. And that, and that is actually what I was getting at because the problems we see today trace back to a shift from foraging, which mushroom hunting is one piece of, to agriculture. And so a lot of people are familiar with that contrast and, and know that agriculture is the considered the foundation of civilization. So that roughly 10,000 years ago, we were able to build cities based on storing grain. And that's what the store is today that we get our food from. And that has led, led, led to hierarchical societies mm-hmm. based on who controlled the stored food and the fact that people no longer fed themselves. And so you had patriarchy, you had women basically become cattle, uh, slavery. And today we're aware of some of those problems. We've already covered that this fear of nature, uh, I think, pervades and underlies all of those problems. We do, quote, bad things because we think we have to to survive, because we think it's kill or be killed, you know, in this competitive society. But it hasn't always been this that way. So it's not just mushroom hunting, but to realize mushroom hunting is part of a culture of foraging. It's universal that it's more egalitarian, that it's fiercely egalitarian which means everyone is equal, everybody shares, no one is forced to do anything, not even children. And that comes from that feeling of abundance that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, It comes from trusting nature, including trusting people. You know, we talk about defunding the police, which is the degree of abolishing policing. Why? Because not only do we not need to be policed, we don't need to be governed. So, there's no government in a hunter-gatherer society. So if you're uh, what's called an anarcho-primitivist, is the term for it, then you believe in anarchy, which is no government. It's self-governance, right? Yeah, it sounds bad to say no government, but it's self-governance, exactly. Yeah. It's consensus. Yeah, it means we, we don't need other people who know more than we do to tell us you know, what's right and wrong and to force us to do the right thing. So we believe in the goodness of human nature, just as we believe in the goodness of nature. And that's not just a belief, that's a feeling of well-being that only foragers have. And that to me, you know, I could say a lot more, but I'll just say one more line that, you know, most of us recognize how fear-based the culture is becoming more and more. Civilization has always been fear-based because it's based on domination and that's traumatic. So when we're traumatized in our upbringing, we live in fear, in fear of getting punished, in fear of not getting the reward, which could mean we starve or we're kicked out and we die alone. So that isn't new. Our choices as a culture and as individuals are based on living in fear and the waking up, you know, that is an analogy I use a lot, is realizing that we don't have to be afraid. 
Okay, cool. So basically what you're saying is the way mushroom hunting can save the world is by getting us back to a more abundant mindset, a less fearful mindset, um, realizing that, you know, uh, things aren't as scarce as, as we make them out to be. Am I on the right path there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And essentially, because I've been working on an essay about this, the feeling is everything is okay. Things are going to be okay. Things have always been okay. A lot of people think like waking up means realizing that things are not okay, that things are that there are things that are wrong that need to be fixed. You have to realize that the difference between that and starting where you're at and saying, you know, we can we could live in a better world, but it's not about like those are the bad guys and we have to overpower them. Sure. You know, because that's not a hunter-gatherer mentality right there. That's a civilized one about good versus evil. And those are, those are ideas that, that are the foundation of all our problems today. So, you know, everything has its place. And that's part of the attitude here. So, you know, today when we say, okay, the, this is wrong, what's happening, this is terrible, you have to realize you're, perpet- you have, you're not changing the fundamental issue. That's, that's, I've made it a little more as general, I think, as you could, but... Yeah, it was basically what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's a, like it's a piece of waking up. It's not it's not being fully awake to just understand all the problems. It is a piece to it though, because you have to realize what you don't want to realize what you do want. So realizing what you do want is the next piece to the puzzle. That's like the full awakening and realizing that you have the power to um, start start approaching that in your everyday life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I must say that in, in my life, I was driven through despair into still being challenged to figure out what I want. And my friend who started the Real Center with me says to me, can you move through your life with more moving towards and less pushing away? Hmm. Because I've always pushed away, you know, and, um, a lot of us believe in the, you know, the word resistance, you know, and I would question, you know, how, how useful that alone is. And, you know, I'm harping on this because I know it's a bit of an activist podcast. So I think that subject will be relevant to people. And I want people to sometimes maybe question, question their own assumptions in trying to choose something healthier for themselves and hopefully for, for the world. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that we're trying to kind of get across um, these days is that, of course, there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in the, wor- in the world right now. And we could just go against that. We could just fight it head on and, you know, mm-hmm. activate all that resistance that you're talking about. Or what we could do is kind of switch the mindset around and realize that we can just build what we actually want instead of tearing stuff down Let's build what we want. And um, we believe that, you know, the foundation of a resilient community is a just and sustainable local food system. So we're trying to get people to get back to the basics, kind of like what you're saying, you know, get back out into nature, realize that there's abundance around you and start building off that and, and going with it. So my question is, how can education around foraging make a community more food secure? Yeah. You know, um, a piece of food security is, or rather food security is, is one piece of a movement called transition. And it too is about building, you know, what we want. And I read a wonderful book by the founder of the movement, Rob Hopkins called from what is to what if, and I would, um, really recommend it as an inspiring, positive way to, um, to think about, and envision, you know, a future that is beautiful, not just running from what is so awful today. Yeah. And so food security and foraging, how, how does one support the other? To me, for, I did a talk once in D.C. next to the Capitol is the, um, the U.S. Botanical Garden. And um, I called it homeland security because my, my pun was that you know, with a home and land, you have security. And a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. 
we think of that in terms of ownership, but to me, it, it almost goes without saying, you know, as the climate changes, wild plants, for one, are more resilient to changes in climate, to drought, for example, and, and flooding. And so that is an aspect of food security. And in fact, there's a movement to preserve the genetic, you know, bank of what's called, um, I think, uh, crop relatives or something like that in order to try to reintroduce that resilience. And this is among, you know, very mainstream food scientists. But one thing people may be wondering or, or thinking who are working on hunger is that, ironically, the people who need wild foods the most may not have a culture of eating wild food. It may seem like beneath them or too dangerous because they're so alienated. Those are the people who live with the most food insecurity and you may not be able to convince them to eat wild foods, but you could convince them to forge and sell those wild foods. And so part of food insecurity is, is not having the money to buy food. And so indirectly, foraging can actually make a lot of people money who don't have a job, who are losing their job from COVID now. I didn't say much about my background selling to restaurants, but you know, I routinely, I would say very conservatively, made $30 an hour on average, on my own time, going out casually whenever I wanted to, foraging in the woods and selling it to restaurants at $15 a pound. There were times I made $300 an hour because I hit a jackpot of mushrooms or not just mushrooms, but things like bamboo, uh, stinging nettle, a lot of wild foods that are in abundance also. So economically, you could promote food security by creating a local green industry of foraging. And you can do that by creating a clearinghouse which, so that everyone who forages doesn't have to sell their, what they have. They bring it into a central place. Somebody inspects it for safety, buys it, and then the restaurants come there to buy wild food. It creates a centralized economy of scale so that there's a steady supply for the restaurant and so that the people forage can just get their exercise, their time in nature, and maybe 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks for just taking a walk easy. And kids can do that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that's one piece. No, there's some good answers in there. Yeah, there really is. Because you're right. You're right that a lot of people might not go out there. They might not be immediately into the idea of eating out of the forest, but they would be possibly into the idea of making money from foods out of the forest which would be a, a great introduction into it because, you know, eventually if you get into it that way, you're going to start trying those foods and, and then you might become uh, really interested in it. Yeah. I was going to ask you another uh, kind of food security question, and it is um, do food foragers ever encourage the formation and expansion of food forests? Yeah, as a matter of fact, of the four myths, you know, that problem might address the only one I haven't mentioned. So the first is too dangerous, too much work, would destroy the woods, and there wouldn't be enough for everyone anyway. And that's the only one with maybe the slightest hint of truth, depending on how you approach foraging. And so, yes, you've hit the nail on it, a thing I might have forgotten to say, that I don't picture everyone on earth going to the what little nature there is left and going, you know, apeshit on a, on a shopping spree. Mm -hmm. I actually think like you just said that even if they did, we'd be better off. That's my feeling than the system we have now. But the word forage comes from the French, which means to pillage, which is what I just described. So real foragers, real hunter gatherers, they don't pillage, they manage the woods. And so what you said about a food forest I mean, I don't know how much of this you covered on the podcast, is permaculture. Yeah, yeah, we talk about it a lot. Sure. So what I'm advocating for is permaculture, which means we don't just like take, you know, manage might be a loaded word for, for, for some people, but, you know, we work in partnership with nature, which is yeah. not what agriculture is. Agriculture is bulldoze everything, put in what we want, even if it's not, not native, but adapted to here. 
So yes, it's not my bag, you know, I'm pretty specialized. Like I don't have permaculture training. I'm sort of maybe a spokesperson sort of indirectly for it. The same way that picking for money could lead you to eating it and might lead you to appreciating it. Like I think foraging can lead people to permaculture. Yeah. 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 Food forest is something that's been coming up in the last couple episodes. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Um, You know, I talked with a guy, uh, Tony Martin, over in the UK and he has a huge plot of land and, and he's just been growing food forests on it. And it seems to be, you know, he obviously encourages a lot of like native species. Like that's what they, they encourage growing, which I think is really cool. And it just kind of seemed up the same alley as what you're into. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned it. And I'm writing that phrase down because I, we're really at a point in this organization where we need to create a food forest yeah. Because, because yeah, we have so many people coming to learn from us and, and that we keep having to bounce around so we don't over impact a place, but I want to buy or lease a place, plant a ton of stuff of wild stuff. And it's wild in the sense, even when we planted that it grows wild, we have not bred it. And then we have plenty to harvest over and over again as we teach people. So I think that that phrase might appeal to someone who owns the land, you know, to envision and, um, and have that partnership with us. Yeah. So you, you've kind of touched on this. I'm going to ask you this question anyway, but you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I really thought this was a cool kind of quote from your website. Um, it says at the root of nearly every disease of civilization from inequality, food insecurity, violence, and environmental degradation to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and addiction lies one fundamental illness, nature deficit disorder. So, you know, can you just like, let us know why is nature so important and how can the average person get in tune with more, with nature more? I know you kind of touched on that, but there's something to it. You know, a phrase that occurred to me earlier that I didn't say is like, we are fish out of water. How can anything work? When you're a fish out of water, I mean, I feel like I'm suffocating just saying that, you know? Imagine, it's a horrifying thought, but like, imagine that, that that's what we are, how we're barely living, you know, by not being, that's the deficit in so many ways yeah. of not being in nature, which I remember again means not being in our bodies and in our hearts. That's where we carry nature. So this isn't just, you know, about being in the woods. I guess briefly, I'll just say, you know, because I was really struck by the, the title of your, your podcast when I thought about it, because the essay I'm working on, I, I thought I would call it Waking Up. And mm-hmm. I drew a tarot card the other day, and it was Justice card. Wow. You know? And it took me a while to think about what is that telling me? Wow. I drew a, diff- a second card, mm-hmm. and it was Eight of Swords, which is um, basically like illusion you know, or ignorance, it shows someone blindfolded, surrounded by swords and tied up. And it's basically like being imprisoned by your ignorance, whereas justice in in the tarot isn't blindfolded. Actually, it's not that figure. And it talks about, it means seeing the reasons why things are the way they are now. And that brings you to a a certain sense of, of, of well-being, you know, or of acceptance, and a stronger place from which to, you know, to choose differently. And so all of that really abstract stuff I'm saying is how I would answer that question once again, that nature, getting back into nature, getting through mushroom hunting or some other way is literally like waking up from a nightmare, you know, because the second you wake up from a nightmare, it's gone and you're free. Now in this life, I think we need to wake up within the dream because even if you don't leave a nightmare as soon as you know this is just a dream you're not going to be afraid anymore you're going to be much more empowered just like you know in the matrix right it's like you know if you go back in there and you know like you know this is just a dream and for drama they played with that because you still could get killed even in the matrix but you know a lot of my interest now is in this these ideas of what i take as what's called non-dualism I don't think you mentioned I studied philosophy in college or maybe I didn't. Okay. I was going to ask what you studied in college. Yeah. 
and uh, and ever since I've been mostly interested in Eastern thought. You know, I wouldn't call it philosophy, but the framework for me now that when I talk about you know home, for example, and I I have a lot of writing, is this idea of what of um, waking up within a dream to where it's no longer a nightmare. That that that's the model that is really helpful for me. And and part of that waking up again is realizing like these these people you thought were bad guys, they were part of your dream, you know. So you have to take you know, you take a certain responsibility for it, and you also like no longer fear or hate people because they're not really separate from you. And you know again, this may seem like it's really going way off from like foraging, but like this is what happens when you're less you know less afraid and being provided for by nature starts you on this path of like what I would call is enlightenment and is what we, it's not what each person needs to be happy. But I think that for us to not just survive, but thrive like as a society, like enlightenment is the natural state that a hunter gatherer lives in. They like, well, life is great. I'm glad to be a part of this. Nothing in this is bad. Like that's what I'm talking about. You know, from that foundation, no one is going to screw somebody else over, you know, and stab them in the back. Like, this is why Lakota talk about all my relations, you know, we, we could, we could get there. What you see now is us not being there, you know, and we have been there. Everyone was there, you know, a hundred thousand years ago. For sure. So I got to ask you about the term non-dualism that you just mentioned. What is that exactly? Well, a lot of people have heard of Eckhart Tolle, who wrote The Power of Now. He was on Oprah, and he is pretty much teaching non-dualism, and he doesn't like to call it that because it's not an ism. It is actually a translation of Advaita Vedanta, which is a branch of Hinduism, but it's important to realize, like, you know, when you wake up, it's not a belief, it's an experience, you know. It's not just a faith that you have. That's what not, you know, you can look up non-dualism and, you know, Alan Watts would, would write a lot about it also. You know, believe it or not, the movie uh, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. Yeah. Really good illustration of, um, in my view, of non-dualism. It's probably the most spiritual movie I've ever seen. Wow. <laughs> I've never looked at it that way. No, you wouldn't. But, but when, if you do, a lot of other people have said that too, you know, from a lot of spiritual traditions. You know? Yeah. So how's it so spiritual? Well, it's, it's talking about the shift from thinking that in order to be happy, things have to be a certain way. You know, I thought of the phrase recently, make yourself at home. You know, you make yourself at home. You don't make home. You don't have to change your circumstances to be happy. You change your attitude. Like, you know, that's the thing is that could be really new agey and it's expecting a lot of people because we're born into a lot of trauma. So I'm not putting a, lot, a heavy trip on people, but, sure. you know, but in that movie, you see someone who like tries everything to change their circumstances, to escape their circumstances till they finally realize that by embracing them, then it clicks, you know? And so something like, you know, love thine enemy, you know, like is another way to paradoxically say that, that like you can't leave something until you love it. And right, if you loved it, why would you want to leave it? It's sort of paradoxical. Yeah, and, and it also reminds me of if you love something, set it free. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Like, and today, what you see is clinging, like hoarding, right? Property, you know, the, like the idea of this is mine is, uh, is the beginning of the opposite of that, you know? Not living in love but in, you know, in fear. Yeah. So the, this essay I've never published or finished, it was called The Best Way to Kill Yourself. And it starts with a story Jack Cornfield tells of a woman whose son was killed in, by a gang member who went to jail. And the short, oh, and, and at the trial, she stands up and says to the gang member, I'm going to kill you. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to kill you because you killed my son. Now, over time... And I'm going to try to keep this brief. She starts corresponding to and visiting the guy in jail who killed her son. Eventually, the guy's let out of jail, has nowhere to go. She lets him move in with her. Wow. She ends up adopting him, 
And I'm telling you the fast end of the story. One day she says, remember when I said, I'm going to cry. This is so cool. But she says, remember when I said, I'm going to kill you? I did kill you because you are not the person you were who wow. killed me. Isn't that cool? I love that. Yeah. It's, um, there's a Hasidic, uh, it's not even a story, two lines. You know, a guy comes to the rabbi. He says, my son has turned against me. What should I do? And the rabbi says, love him more than ever. How many, you know, how many of us are, are approaching life that way right now? You know, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, I think about that a lot, actually. Um, you know, because I get into a lot of like spiritual teachings and stuff like that. And one of the things that comes up the most is uh, forgiving people, but not just only forgiving people in like the, hey, I forgive you, you know, you screwed my wife, I forgive you type thing. Yeah. But but no, like a true sense of of actually forgiving people. And um I there's something there's something truly liberating there and uh, I think I'm just now starting to catch on to it, but um no, I I really appreciate that you sharing that story. That's a great story. Yeah, as, as Arnold Patton who is quoted um by the author of uh, Radical Forgiveness. His name's evading me, but he said, forgiveness is not letting bygones be bygones. It's realizing that nothing wrong ever took place. Mm, wow. Uh, I have a whole, a whole file of quotes like this. You know, basically, I have other ones that say, when you understand the reasons why someone did what they did, then, then you don't blame them for it. You realize everyone is always doing the best they can. Mm. Everyone is always doing the best they can. Like, if we all really got that, wow! What a different world. Huh? That's real empathy right there. Yeah, yeah. To be able to just understand that, yeah, everyone's at a different place in their life, and I guess in a in a true way, everybody is doing the best they can. It just is what it is. I mean, I can't tell you. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm not upset about all the shit going on. You know about the cataclysmic. You know sixth extinction you know right they call it um yeah you know not to mention the social injustice that is really just the flip side of that because not caring about others includes humans and you know other species or the the planet yeah and it doesn't and you know and this sort of thing that i don't know if we'll call it acceptance or empathy doesn't mean you let this stuff go on but you don't approach it from this sense that like it should not be happening that like people are wrong and bad. When you look at like indigenous cultures, like there's been language studies where a lot of those cultures don't have the verb is in a permanent sense. So they don't say he is smart. She is, you know, selfish. Like they don't even have that verb because so they don't label things. Mm. Because that is the root of violence. It's dismissive too. It, it, it's just, it, it casts a, a, broad, a really broad net. Yeah. And nothing is really black and white to be cast that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the studies show that, that the violent cultures have that verb and the nonviolent do not. Like there was a strong correlation. Wow. So it's almost like some cultures are more judging basically than others. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, and the judgment, ironically, the judgment of right and wrong is the problem that creates what we consider wrong. Mm. So if you just break free of that mindset, basically there's, there's not right or wrong. Everybody's doing the best they can, and they're just, everyone's in a different place. And, and a way that we can really kind of excel is just by understanding where someone's coming from, having the mindset to try to understand why they did that, why they made that decision. And if we do that, yeah, we're, we're kind of breaking the chains. And there is a, and there, there is the perfect tool for doing this that some of you all have heard of called nonviolent communication. Mm. It was started in the sixties by Marshall Rosenberg. If you Google him, YouTube is full of videos of him doing this exact thing it is unbelievable how you can take someone who's 
you know, kids were murdered with their murder and like watch them work this out. You know, there's a method to it. It's well established. There's a lot of people doing it. Marshall died a few years ago, but he trained a bunch of people. And this is the main thing that the center I co-founded teaches. So the tool is there. This sounds like pie in the sky, you know, to not like blame people and hate people and, you know, name call, but like the, this, this NV, NVC, if you look it up, is pretty incredible and proven for almost 75 years, I guess now. That is our fundamental natural attitude, you know. And that's what, you know, we've been talking about the whole time, you know, getting back to nature, a sense of life being good and worthwhile and safe because, well, this is going to sound to some people really like flaky, but after all this talk, it might not, you know, that the earth is our mother, right? We are her children. What mother doesn't love her children? Like, that's the feeling that I'm talking about. What else? <laughs> well, I mean, we've gotten really philosophical and we've gotten uh, really spiritual, actually, which is awesome because I love going down those sort of rabbit holes, if you will. And I think it's cool that that we went down those rabbit holes all from talking about food in the beginning. And I think it, it kind of proves what we've been trying to get across at Waking Justice and that is just that, like, starting with food, starting with nature, we can actually accomplish a lot more than we think. Um, and we can work ground up instead of top down, you know what I mean? And, yeah, I really appreciate your conversation with me today, Alan. It's, mm -hmm. it's been really enlightening, um, a lot more so than, than I thought it could have been. Mm -hmm. um, so I really appreciate that. Um, I guess like before we go, can you just like give the people um, information about how to find you and how to find No Taste Like Home? Yeah. Um, NoTasteLikeHome.org is the organization's website. It will look mostly like a tour company, but we do have 10-week course, three seasons, spring, summer, and fall that someone local can take as well as the tours, which mostly right now fund us because they cater to tourists. My writing is on my website, which is my name, alanmuscat.com. That's A-L-A-N-M-U-S-K-A-T. Awesome. And you'll find, even if you can't remember either of those, you put in Mushrooms Asheville or something, like either one of us will come up. Cool, right on. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah. I really you. do appreciate it. And I'm glad we're in the same city. So hopefully we can keep these conversations moving and just keep working towards a more natural world. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And, and waking up. <laughs> and waking up. Yeah. Waking justice. Right on. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Austin. Thank you. Yo, thanks for listening to the podcast today. If you're currently involved in a local project that strengthens the links in your local food supply chain, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at wakingjustice.org and tell us about your work. And if you want to learn more about local revolutionaries making evolutionary change in their communities, find us on your favorite podcast platform or head on over to wakingjustice.org to meet the team, check out more episodes, and learn more about the project. And to become a financial supporter of this podcast and to gain access to members-only content, visit patreon.com slash wakingjustice. And remember, the real revolution builds self-reliance and community resilience. That's why the real revolution is a local revolt. You must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice. It is my love. It is my justice love. is waking, justice is rising. Justice is waking, justice is rising. It is my love.
Justice is rising and it ain't just us, it's all of us. If it's our love. 